Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Dr. Williams is the author of the acclaimed book, Shattered by the Darkness, Putting the Pieces Back Together After Child Abuse. Dr. Williams is on the senior leadership team at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And Dr. Williams travels the United States speaking and training professionals, parents, and victims about the importance of dealing with abuse and personal trauma head-on and not being afraid to break the silence of your own personal pain. Feel free to call in to tonight's show at... 888-627-6008 and speak with Dr. Williams and his guests live on air. And now, your host, Dr. Williams. Welcome to Breaking the Silence. I'm Greg Williams. Welcome to my home here in the most beautiful city in the world, Houston, Texas. And I'm just looking out the window here. Not much going on, but I imagine everybody's at a Super Bowl party or something watching uh, uh, the Eagles and uh, the Chiefs take it on the field and see who's going to end up winning that. But I'll tell you what, you can put the DVR and record it. You can watch this live tonight, and we want you to be with us tonight. And if the one neat thing about our program is that if you invest a uh, uh, 45 minutes to 55 minutes of your time into our program, we almost promise you that you're going to be able to take something with you into next week and to be able to use it. If you want to get uh, involved in the conversation tonight, there's two ways to do that. One, you can get right on here. looks like, yeah, we are live. Uh, Shattered by the Darkness Facebook page. Uh, we're already live up on that and welcoming co comments and questions. Uh, on there, my son Curtis in Seattle, Washington. I met, I think, matter of fact, he's running it from Thailand or something tonight. He's there for two or three weeks with the army doing a secret mission. We're not supposed to talk about it. I don't know what he's doing there, but he's there for several weeks. But anyway, uh, Shattered by the Darkness, you can get on there or you can call straight to the wonderful people at BBS Radio with their radio voice at 888 and they will patch you right through, I promise you, within a few seconds right into us. And our guest and myself will welcome you to the program and let you have a comment or a question about what we're talking about. As we're going into uh, Valentine's Day uh, this coming week, I hope you end up sharing uh, that day or at least this week with somebody that you care for and love and uh, spend some special time with them. And I think it's really important for you to be able to Look in their eyes and tell them what they mean to you. Uh, especially, uh, you need to enjoy those times because when those times are no longer there and they're gone, you would have wished that you spent time with them. But I think really this week, I want you to, beginning tonight, to start doing a few things for yourself when you look in the mirror into your own eyes. And I just want to, I always share just a couple minutes really quick about what's going on in my own mind. But first of all, uh, I want you to start doing something maybe tomorrow. And I hope this is impactful for you as it is me. Start filling your life with people that you want to spend time with, the right people in your life. Don't fill your life up with people that are the wrong people. Uh, the people that you enjoy, 
the people that love you, the people that appreciate you. Uh, and you want to always surround yourself with people that are going to lift you higher in life. And the ones that are dragging you down, maybe now is the time to cut them loose uh, and bring people in to replace them that's going to lift you up and support the direction that you're going, help you achieve your dreams. And to be honest with you, I just heard this quote a couple of days ago. If you're the smartest person in the room right now, you need to go to another room. Because you always want to be in a room with some people that are a little smarter than you, that you can draw from, learn from, grab a hold of and help them elevate you. And then at one point, you can grab a hold of somebody else and help take them to another level. But start surrounding yourself this week with people that are the right people for your life. Um, another thing you can start doing is start valuing the mistakes that you make. Um, I, I think that's important. Forget the mistake, but learn the lesson. Let me repeat that. You want to forget the mistake of your past, but learn the lesson from your past. Don't forget that, or you'll keep repeating the mistake. So that's important. So start valuing the lessons that you learn from the mistakes. And then you want to start enjoying the things that you already have in life. Uh, too many of us think that when we reach a certain level in life, uh, a level we see other people operating at, our boss in their nice corner office with the wonderful scenery of, of the, the city behind them or that friend of that has the mansion on the beach. Don't worry about that. I tell you what, just start focusing on something that you want in life and that you are proud that you have in your life, those little blessings that are around you. Um, that there's three uh, C's in life uh, that write these down. There's choices, there's chances, and there's changes. And you must make a choice to take a chance in your life or it's never going to change. And those three C's can end up changing your world. And start giving yourself also um, a chance at those dreams, those ideas, those things that you were thought were so unattainable. I want to let you know they're, they're right there. Tonight's guest is a perfect example of that. From the title of her book, and we're going to bring her on here just in a second, we'll let you know I went from this point in my life to this point in my life, and it may have been a dream that was totally, everybody would say, there's no way you'll ever do that. But she did. And I'm going to find out how she did it and what was inside of her that kept her going on. And then the, the last thing, and then I'll be done and, and bring Mary Beth in. But Start believing right now, right now, that you're ready for the next step in life. Think about it. You have everything you need right now to take the next small step, a realistic step, moving forward. And if you never take it, your life's never going to change. So don't wait until you're ready to take action. Instead, take action to be ready. 
and that'll change your life. Just a few things that I, I thought I'd throw out at you uh, this evening, and maybe you can take in the next week. I'd always like to do that. I'm one of those type of people that I read motivational books and listen to motivational speaking and all that time, and, and, and I write all this stuff down. I go, wow, that, that changed my life. And uh, I'm writing a new book right now called Life Lessons Learned uh, While Being Abused. And there's some things that when we get caught in that bubble, of trauma, sometimes we never see ourselves outside of that. And there is a life beyond that if we can just get you help. And you always want to be able to do that. Tonight, Mary Beth O'Connor. She has been clean and sober. And this is a uh, a milestone since 1994. She has also recovered from abuse, trauma, anxiety, and to be honest with you, after reading her book the second time uh, this weekend, that's probably the understatement of the year that she just is in recovery from abuse. You will not believe the story you're going to hear tonight. She's a director, secretary, and founding investor of She Recovers Foundation, and she's also a director of Life Ring Secular Recovery. And uh, she has a new book out, that has been released, and we're going to bring her in all right now. And the name of that book, I want everybody to be able to have access to it tonight so you can find out how you're going to be able to get a hold of it. From Junkie to Judge, and it's my honor to welcome to our program this evening for the second time, Mary Beth O'Connor. Mary Beth, can you hear me tonight? I can. I can hear you very well. Thanks. Hey, great, Mary Beth. Where are you at right now? What state are you located in? I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, San Francisco, the wonderful state of California. Out there all the time. Just came from San Diego a few weeks ago. And a uh, wonderful place. So welcome to the program. Thank you. How are you doing? Good. I'm good. I'm, I'm a New Jersey girl, so that Eagles game, you know, is going on. And, but other than that, <laughs> I'm doing good. Well, great. if I was going to put money on the game, it would be to Eagles all the way because they're <laughs> going to take it tonight. There's no doubt. Uh, tell me, how the books do it? How excited do you be the first time author and to have a published work that's out there from HCI, which is a wonderful publisher, uh, the same one that published my first book. Uh, what's it feel like? Tell me how it's doing, Mary Beth. You know, I mean, I really view the book as sort of part of my advocacy work. And, and I do want to share the subtitle, which is One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. Um, but it is exciting to have the book, you know, physically out there. My friends found it at the Barnes and Noble near my hometown, which is nice. And of course, it's available on Amazon and all the usual. But it's also nice to get the attention and opportunity to share my story and to talk about multiple paths to recovery, but also really at this point to be sort of a reassurance to people that there is a path forward, that there is a path out, and that really your future can be anything beyond your imagination. Because when I started getting into recovery, I never thought I'd end up a judge. You know, was it on my list of things to do? So um, as you say, it's that step-by-step progression to who knows where you're going to end up in the future. Well, yeah, when I, I was reading your story from chapter one on, I mean, I thought my book started really like, oh, right in your face, and it does. But chapter one, my first shot, I believe is the name of it, my first shot, like, wow, uh, you get the attention of the reader. And in that trauma, abuse, and all of that, how did you know or where did you get the strength to be able to 
to even decide, you know, I may end up wanting to go to law school. How does one even do that? Well, you know, when I was in school, uh, you know, when I was young, when all the negative events were happening, school was my one special place. You know, I got a lot of positive attention at school. There were times where teachers really singled me out and let me do things academically or like I could take any book out of the library when other kids were limited to the book for their grade. And so that was always my positive shining place. And so academics were something that I engaged with that I was happy with that I that I saw as a possible future and also to be honest I was argumentative as a kid I was very verbal so I was told from a young age that I would make a good lawyer (laughs) Um, so it was always partly in my mind but I was also a blue-collar girl I mean my my stepfather worked at a a, a, um, steel mill my mother was a secretary no one in my family had ever gone to college Um, But still, I was it was sort of from teachers, it was always expected that that's where I was going to end up. And so but lawyer was partly on the list. But all the way through that, did anybody in that academic world know what was going on back at home in your life? Or did you cover all that up and was a perfect student? Uh, when I was young in particular, let's say before my teen years, I certainly was pretty much, you know, the perfect student. And I don't think they were looking for a problem because I did well at school. And so no one was really asking about it. There were incidents at home where things would come up once in a while, but it was never, I, I really don't think there was, um, there was a sign that they missed. I think I, the signs were hidden. I was hiding them and there was no reason for them to question it. By the time I got to high school, I did get more verbally aggressive with teachers sometimes. I started missing a lot of school. So at that point, there were some signs that there were issues, but that was pretty far along and almost really toward the end of high school when I was not that far away from graduating. Do you, when you get, I'm sure you are now, and it'll start being more as the book sells more and more and you get more popular and and things, people know your name like Oprah, I mean, oh, yeah, Mary Beth, uh, they, they're going to know that. Um, and you get in front of a bunch of teachers. Is there any wisdom? Because I do this because I was one of those that said in the front of the class, always got the projects done early, turned in and you're a straight A student, all that type of stuff. Is there any advice that you would have for teachers that have a fifth, sixth, seventh grade class? room and they always focus like on the bullies or the ones that's in detention all the time. What about the Mary Beths and the Gregs that get overlooked because we're a good student, even though we were going through hell at home? Yeah, that's interesting. The one the one episode I can remember is that there was a period of time where I wasn't really showering a lot, but also that my clothes weren't always neat and clean the way that you would necessarily expect. And my I remember one time my dresses were too short and the principal called my mother. And the reason they were that short was partly I was dresses were short at the time and I grew fast, but also my mother never got up to see me leave the house. And so there were some signs, I guess, uh, small signs that I wasn't perhaps getting the oversight (laughs) that someone would have expected and maybe a little bit of a sign of depression by not always taking care of myself. But other than that, I I don't know what they could have seen. I really don't know what they could have noticed. Wow. So do you think they need more education from folks like us about how to ask the right questions, watch for the right signs. Um, I can't believe 
no one ever asked me, how are you doing, Greg? Um, because Mary Beth, you, you can't go through what you went through um, without having some visible sign or emotional sign in you as a child, can you? Well, part of what I think of it as you say that is that today, I know some schools at least have mental health counselors and other people that have training in those areas. And certainly in my school, there was nothing like that. We barely had a guidance counselor. Right. right. I don't think we did. <laughs> so I do think there are some better systems in place, although I know with the school budget problems and, you know, they never have enough money. Sometimes those positions get cut. But hopefully they have a, a little bit more information. But I will say when I started acting out more in junior high school and high school, there were definitely that might have been a sign someone might have followed up about. You seem angry. You know, you seem aggressive. Is there something going on at home? And no one ever really questioned me about that. Um, and so that would have been at least the, that point would have been an opportunity to have a conversation based on my uh, my changed behavior, if nothing else. Wow. Hold up your book for us so we can see it. I, I love the cover of this book. Uh, let's see, back it up a little bit so we'll focus. Ah, there we go. Uh, I see let's it. see. Uh, I, I'm having trouble. Oh, it's because it's in the blur. It's in the blur. There we go. That's, that's there perfect, go. right? From Junkie to Judge, <laughs> One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma. And now, this is available on, on Amazon. It's available at your local Barnes & Noble. It should be in every every store right now. Um, now, to be honest with you, I'd like for you to do me a favor. Turn to chapter one in your book, the first two paragraphs. You come out of <laughs> chapter one like a stallion on a at the Kentucky Derby. I tell you what, just woo. Those first two paragraphs are powerful. Just just look through those in, in chapter one right now for me. What comes to your mind? When you go back and read those first two paragraphs, because, folks, it's worth the price of the book for the first two paragraphs. What goes through your mind when you read that? It was it was really that I wanted to make it clear that I wasn't talking about casual drug use. I mean, it's my first shot as in the first time I shot meth. And that that is how extreme it was for me. And I was 17 years old the first time that I shot meth. And it, so I wasn't, you know, the typical kid who was just sampling drugs or doing them at a party. I was doing drugs on almost a daily basis toward the end of high school, including shooting up. And so it's really a sad, you know, memory that that's where I was. It's not just that I did it. It's that that seemed like a good idea to me. That seemed like the natural next step when the, when it was suggested to me, well, Mary Beth, you're going to have to shoot up for the first time. I was excited about it. It wasn't like a negative. I didn't think twice. I was happy. Great. You know, a more intense high, the next step in my drug use. I, I was reaching for it. I was reaching for it as something that was one of the few positives in my life. It's just that the positive part doesn't last. It turns on you. But that that is where I found my happiness and joy is really sad underneath it. Was that first shot the next step of helping you deal with the pain that you was, had gone through as a child? And was yes. going through at the time. Yes. I mean, that's what it was always about. I, you know, I started with alcohol, pot, then pills, a lot of acid, and then the meth. And it was always about 
oh, this new drug is better than the old one at making me feel better, at numb, covering my pain, at numbing me out. So yeah, each, each drug, I dropped the old drug for the new drug because the new drug worked better <laughs> at those goals. And those were my goals. It was to tamp down the pain, but also to feel some level of joy and connection and camaraderie with my friends and peers that were doing drugs together. So um, yeah, it was, all right, great. Now I'm going to shoot up. That's going to be an even stronger high, an even better high. It's going to work even better than what I've been doing up until now. There's a, there's a part, and I, I wish I wrote it down. There's a part of one chapter, one place where you said your body started getting hot and then you went above your body looking down on and it's like wow the way you you wrote that i felt that with you it's like that's that's really powerful and i i guess that was in in something to do with meth i believe later on uh in in the book about three quarters of the way through if i remember right when you was on meth and those drugs did it affect you like the friends that i used to know or the acquaintances in school that you could visibly tell the impact of what meth would do and when you took that first shot, was you immediately hooked? I already was. I already was uh, addicted to meth before I shot it up. I mean, I was using it pretty much on a daily basis. You know, snort. I was snorting it, and sometimes I would have to drink it because my nose was clogged or whatever. But I already was addicted, and I was really drug dependent almost from the beginning. I pursued alcohol. I mean, I pursued it. I didn't wait for alcohol to come to me. You know, I was looking for opportunities to create opportunities to drink. It wasn't casual for me, not even with alcohol for all of the drugs, but I was using meth on an almost daily basis before I put that needle in my arm. So when we use the term junkie, it's not a slam to you because that's exactly what you was involved with. That's yeah, I mean, That's right. I mean, I would never use that term for someone else because, you know, there are right. negative connotations, but I wanted to make it clear that that's what I was doing. And, and uh, part of the reason I use that word is because there are those shows on television where they're showing people who have a meth use disorder, who are addicted to methamphetamine. And it's almost like they show them as if they're just hopeless people, that they're never going to get better. They're never going to get out of it. And I really wanted to own that I was her, you know, she is me. I shot meth basically for 15 years and I got sober. And I have, as you say, 29 years. There is hope for all of those people, anyone who's got their meth use disorder that out of control, anyone who's putting a needle in their arm, whatever the drug, we can all heal, we can all get recovery, we can all get better because I did it. Yeah, yeah. What was... As you look back, number one, let's talk more about the book just for a second. How difficult was it to put it in writing? Uh, and and I, I made big uh, circles in my, I got the, the ebook, uh, big circles that I marked and highlighted every time you mentioned smell. Uh, if you smelled brute right now, would that automatically trigger you? I would know it. I mean, I would recognize the smell, right? Absolutely. I would recognize the smell. Yes. And I haven't smelled it probably for 40 or 50 years, but I would know right. it. Yes. Yeah, me too. Cause that's what my dad wore too. Brute and old spice and, 
aqua velva and that the cheap <laughs> stuff, you know. Um, but uh, when you started writing it, what kind of trauma or what kind of triggers did you experience when you started trying to put it down on paper and how difficult was that for you? When I, I mean, I had processed a lot of it because I, I was, I started running it when I became a judge. So that was in 2014 and I was already you know, basically in, in my fifties. That's when I really started thinking about the arc of the book and how the heck did I go from shooting that to becoming a federal judge? Um, and I had processed a lot of it, but the thing about memoir is you really have to write it in an immersive, visceral, as you say, way. And so that, um, that required really thinking about it, closing my eyes and putting myself in the scene and remembering what it looked like. And as you say, the sounds and the smells and the noises. And so that did create some moments of um, anxiety or stress. But there were also parts of it where processing it again in a different way than I had for years helped me um, feel more comfortable about things that I had done. Uh, like there's the the one rape in LA where there was a decision that I made that I had second guessed myself on for decades. And when I wrote the book and really focused on exactly what the situation was and exactly what happened, I really let go of that sort of self-judgment and realized, no, I have to trust that Mary Beth in that moment understood the nuances and the factors at play better than I ever could in retrospect and that she made the right call. And so that was really a nice moment of release of sort of a lingering self-doubt. Is that the same uh, situation, Uh, rape, uh, kidnapping, or however you wanted to, to word it in your book, that you reacted in a certain way because I believe you made a sentence that I didn't write down, but it said something about that's the only reason I'm alive today. Yeah. I was thinking about when they went, they stopped at the gas station to get gas. So I was in the back of the van, you know, there were three of them, two went outside to get gas and one was in the back with me. And I thought about, can I get out and let the people, you know, at the gas station hear me or see me, could I reach the door and pull it open before I was going to get shot or tackled? And I really thought hard about it, you know, the distance between me and the door. And I'd seen those kind of van doors before I knew how heavy it was and how much effort it was going to take. And I could hear people, but I couldn't tell how close they were. And the man that was still in the van was very close to me. And all of that weighing of, is it worth the risk to try to get out? Um, I second guessed that decision for a long time because I decided not to try because I didn't believe it was even remotely possible for me to get out. But it was a hard, hard decision that I, I wrangled with for decades afterward. Yeah. If somebody was listening tonight and they're thinking about, because I, I have a friend that is in the process right now of writing a book and the emotions are coming up. The the, the triggers are there. The the, the doubt and the the self uh, condemnation of why did I do that stuff? That kind of thing. Uh, what words of wisdom do you have? But about now, where you're at as a, a published author and the impact that it's making on other people. Well, I would say, first of all, I think writing the book, I did gain in general more sort of sympathy for my younger self. Again, just remind it was a reminder of how difficult circumstances were and how I really tried to do the best I could to manage things. And so I I think I'm more 
sympathetic and in a way reconnected to that younger self than before I started writing the book. So that was a positive. But it is also about trying to to um, let people know by your example that even with like I had the child abuse and actually two multi-assailant rapes and a violent boyfriend and with all of those things and the drug addiction, um, that recovery is still possible and not just survival, but true recovery. I have a happy and productive life. I've actually resolved the PTSD and the anxiety, not perfectly, but I, depending on the day, I say 92 to 95%, you know, which is pretty darn good. Pretty good. Um, and I enjoy my life and I'm living a productive life and I have good relationships and all of that. And so that is really what I think for most of us, when we tell our story, that's the hope that people will connect to it. People will, with similar experience, will gain hope for their own future so they can take the efforts and put it in so that they too can come out the other side and find um, happiness. Was writing the book like uh, going to the therapist for three years every day of the week. Uh, was that that type of therapy for you? It was for me. Was it for you as you was writing it? I mean, there definitely was the emotional component to it. And um, and just trying, because you do have to write it in such detail, you know, and so you're forced into putting yourself in scene. There was that emotional side. But I also will say, writing the book, there was an enjoyable intellectual exercise, right? To figure out how do you write a good memoir? I didn't know how to write a good memoir when I started. And so I, ha- you know, I took classes and did practices and critique groups and, and all of that. And it was really um, it was really a challenge to figure out how to write a good book. And I enjoy that kind of challenge. And so even though there was some emotional, difficult moments, there was also this positive experience of learning how to do something new and feeling like, you know, this actually might be of value and all of those other positive experiences. That's great. Tell you what, we're going to drill down a little bit deeper into the book. Uh uh, from junkie to judge while we take our first we're our only commercial break tonight uh listen to that but it gives you a chance to get on amazon and pull it up so when we get off the program tonight you can just order it right away because it's available immediately for you to be able to read uh we'll take a first commercial break 888-627-6008 if you have a question for mary beth or a uh, a comment feel free or maybe even something about hey how did you get through that if you're dealing with addiction right now trauma uh, trying to recover and you keep slipping backwards. How did, you know, what advice maybe Mary Beth has for you tonight? Call in 888-627-6008. And we'll be right back after this short break. About a minute and a half. We'll be right back. HCI Publishing, that brought you the international bestsellers, A Child Called It, and the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, comes the latest book by Dr. Gregory Williams, Shattered by the Darkness. This book describes the horrific abuse that Dr. Williams suffered at the hands of his father for over 12 years, and the damaging effect of keeping everything silent about that abuse for 30 years. If you're looking for that book that you can't put down, then pick up a copy of Shattered by the Darkness by Dr. Gregory Williams at all Barnes & Noble stores 
Amazon, and Books a Million. Now, back to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Welcome back to the program. We are honored tonight to have Mary Beth O'Connor with us, an author. Didn't it, didn't it make you feel good? An author. I, I, I can't imagine being uh, all rise when you walk into a courtroom like you had people <laughs> rising for you. But there's something about being an author, too, that makes you feel pretty darn good, isn't it? There is. There is. And it's, um, it is an accomplishment. And also, you know, I have actually written essays and other things that get published too. So it's nice to realize, oh yeah, I guess I'm a writer now. (laughs) I'm a writer now and a speaker and an advocate. Um, But it is also nice to be using this time of my life to be of service, right? I mean, it feels, it feels rewarding to be doing this work at this point. Isn't that what it's all about? Yes. I mean, that is the real goal. It's to try to um, be of use and to encourage others and to offer not an example like you have to do exactly what I did, but more an example that you can find the path forward. And maybe some of what I did is useful, some ideas and techniques that I can share. But we do in the end all have to find our own individual path out of it. Yeah, and I think sometimes I, I forgot who said it, but somebody said something about it's not what life does to you. It's what life does for you. And if we can figure out what that for is and do it to help people in service, uh, that's what it's all about, to go out now. And I hope you are out in front of a lot of people uh, to be able to say, hey, don't give up. Keep taking those little steps forward and you can keep keep on keeping on and be anything you want to be. Exactly. I mean, the judge thing, for example, I emphasize, I went to law school at six and a half years sober. I became a judge at 20 years sober. It was, These were not overnight accomplishments, right? It was really, and when I got out of rehab, I had a Berkeley degree and my first job was part-time, temporary, low-level admin, because that's all I was ready for. That's where I started. But it is always, as you were talking about in your intro, about what's the right next step for me and how do I get myself prepared to take that right next step? What skills do I need to make that right next step? What characteristics or how do I need to preserve my anxiety? I needed to do that to really go as far as I could go. But it is all we can do is what's the right next step in these different areas. Leaping over it isn't going to work. And it's actually, if we try, probably going to increase the odds we're going to fail. So it's better to take it one step at a time, set your priorities, set your specific goals. And it's amazing what can happen in five or 15 or 20 years. Yeah, yeah, you're proof, you're proof in the pudding on that. Um, I, I was fascinated and I wrote this uh, sentence down in chapter two that when you said my life had started sliding downhill within weeks of my conception. What in the world do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I included it for a reason. So my mother was, we come from an Irish Catholic family, and my mother got pregnant with me, not married, in 1960. Um, And that was a major ordeal. And my biological father refused to marry her. The Catholic Church had this system set up where they would send the, the young women off to a um, a facility in a different city. My mother went to Philadelphia where the baby was born. And if you wanted it up for adoption, they would handle that. 
Um, but it was a problem for my mother immediately because she was unwed, Irish Catholic, 1960. What's going to happen with her life at this point? Well, I'm glad things have changed. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That we don't ship people off now just to, you know, that that what a crazy way of dealing with uh, birth and pregnancy. Uh, well, I mean... The other side was that when she when she wanted to come home, my grandparents wouldn't let her bring me in the house. And so I was actually left at the nunnery for the first six months of my life. I didn't live with my mother or my family. I lived at with with the nuns, you know, and so I was separated from them. I'm sure they, you know, fed me and changed me and all of that. And my mother visited, but even under her version, it wasn't that like every day or anything. Um, and my, when I met my husband, he told me that I reminded him of the monkeys who never got touched enough when they were babies, you know, and I think there's some truth to that. I'm sure there is. I mean, I, I think those first few years mold a lot uh, of what you are when you're our age. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm a lot better, but there is still that, you know, fear. If my husband doesn't come home when he's supposed to, I still sometimes think, well, he must be dead. You know, like there's no other explanation. So I'm always waiting for the next loss, the next crisis. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. I am. I swear 92 to 95 percent better. But um, but these things are still underneath and they still rear their head up every now and again and remind me of, of where I used to be. And that I'm I still have some residual impacts from it. We all do. Yeah. When you look back on your life and, you know, as you're writing the book or just looking back on it now, how did you get through some of those days? Um, I think you were very vivid. Number one, you're, you're a very raw writer. Uh, if people are easily offended, get over it when you start reading the book because you don't want to, you know, get the book but don't be so easily offended just this is the way you're communicating and, and i like rawness that doesn't bother me a bit and it makes me feel your your pain and your emotions and that's that's beautiful as you look back how did you for instance deal with a young girl her menstrual cycle beginning what happened during that time how did you get through that, Mary Beth? How did you have the strength within you, or what did you use to get through those moments? I mean, I didn't have a lot of choice, right? If we're right. in it and we have nowhere else to go. Um, I do know that a lot of, for some of the things, I tried to develop techniques that I thought would give me some level of protection. Not that I could get rid of the risk or the problem, but that I could help reduce it. So, for example, I, you know, I taught my sister that when we empty the dishwasher, we should put the dishes away one dish at a time. Because that way they didn't clank, right? And so they're not making noise that you're going to wake up my stepfather or get in trouble for. Um, so when he would come home from work, we would be waiting at the front door so that when he pulled in the driveway on the side of the house, we would sneak out the front door and go around and he wouldn't see us. And so there were some things I tried to do to reduce the risk. But in the end, I knew I couldn't get rid of it because it was out of my control. Um, and we would try to stay in our room and avoid him. But 
you know, it was, it really was phases. Sometimes I would just get quiet and other times I would get mad you know, and I would yell back or get aggressive with him. Sometimes I wanted to just, I knew I would make it beat worse, but I really wanted to stand up and say, I'm a person like I'm here, you know, and I would say something mean to him or make him look stupid, um, which I liked to do, even if I was going to pay for it. It was just a way of asserting myself and trying to be visible in a way. Um, but in the long run, I ran out of steam and then I found drugs. And so that seemed to be a solution. It seemed to help. And then it turned on me. And, and that's in the, in the long run, the, I really feel like I paid 20 years. You know, I picked up drugs at 12 and I was really fully full born addiction by 16 or 17. And I didn't get sober until I was 32. You know, that's a long haul. That's a long loss. So I, I'm proud of some of the things I did. But in the end, you know, I really succumbed to a common reaction, which is to turn to substances, and they took over for a long time. You have issues then and now with self-esteem? I certainly did then. I mean, I slept with a lot of guys I, you know, I didn't care about. I um, did a lot of risky behaviors. Partly I'm alive by pure luck. I mean, some really, partly it is pure luck. I would get in cars with people I barely knew and go out into the country to get high. So partly it was luck. And then it really wasn't, it was self-esteem when I got sober in the sense of the anxiety. Like I didn't really trust that even my efforts were going to be sufficient. I was always worried that one little mistake and everything I had accomplished in my early recovery was going to come crashing down on my shoulders. So I knew I was doing most things right, but I didn't trust that the outcome was going to be positive. And I think part of that is when you're in an abusive household, the connection between what you do and what the outcome is or what happens, it's severed, right? Because what you do doesn't have a direct result with what happens to you. What happens to you is because of the, the stepfather or, you know, whoever else is abusing you. So I didn't have that strong sense of if I do the right thing, the odds are good that I'm going to get a positive outcome. Because in my house, I could do the right thing 25 times and 24 would be okay. And the 25th, I get beaten. So it wasn't that strong connection, if you know what I mean. So there was a lot of things to learn and overcome in my recovery and self-esteem tied to the anxiety um, and the lack of feeling that my behavior was going to have the greatest impact on my future was tenuous. Yeah. When, um, when you became the, the judge, what life uh, experiences were you able to take to the bench with you that allowed you to have a different set of eyes that other people that hadn't gone through it wouldn't have ever been able to catch. But because of your life experience, how did that benefit with you being in that robe uh, in front of people and making some tough decisions, I'm sure. I do think that judges aren't as well educated as they should be about substance use disorder. There's a lot of times there's a belief, a fantasy that when people start to try to get sober, to try to be abstinent, that somehow if they try hard enough, they're going to be 100 percent successful. Well, that's just not true. People can try really, really hard and still not be 100 percent successful from day one or that um 
or that the process should be faster than it is. You know, well, you know, it's been a year or two years. Why are they still having issues? Well, it's a long, years-long process. Plus, most people with a substance use disorder, often they have mental health issues, either from their trauma history or some other, you know, biochemical reason. So there's partly, I think, a lack of understanding of the full impact. And then judgments can get made. Well, she's not really trying. You know, she said she would be absent and now she came up with a, you know, a bad urine or whatever it might be. And then there's also sometimes a leap from she uses drugs to therefore she can't tell the truth about anything. Right. And I think that's problematic. Most people that use drugs, they may lie about their drug use. That's true. (laughs) But it doesn't mean they're generally lying about everything in life. Right. And so there's a disconnect there. Um, so there were some pieces of information I had also as a trauma victim. I saw a lot of people before me that were struggling because of childhood trauma that they had never been able to resolve. And that was something that I understood that I don't think a lot of the judges really appreciated. So it was. So did you ever did you ever ask that uh, with there was a 25 year old man, uh, a 30 year old woman in front of you and you say, hey, did something happen to you when you were younger? Did you ever able to connect the the dots there with people? Well, usually they would, the kind of judge I was, they would tell me because they wanted an ex, you know, there would be an explanation either in their mental health records, which I was reviewing, or they would want me to know, you know, that I'm really trying. So I didn't usually have to guess. I could see it in there. Um, But it was something that, um, that mostly it showed up in their mental health treatment or their lack of abilities, let's say to hold a job because they were struggling with PTSD or anxiety or other issues. So that was really how it arose, but usually it was fairly evident. Yeah. What are you hoping um, besides to sell 5 million of these books? What are you hoping the book does for each person that reads it? Tell me what your dreams are with your memoir now being out there for the whole world because you, you, I don't think you hit anything. If you did, there'd be another book too. Because uh, <laughs> there's a book too in my life, but I, because I didn't open all my closets. But what are you hoping that it accomplishes for the reader that picks up your book tonight? I mean, on the trauma side, I certainly hope that it's an example of, of having hope that you can recover from this and have a happy and fulfilled life. And for the substance use disorder side, Um, One of the things I talk about is that there's more than one way to get sober. I mean, the 12 steps, you know, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous works for a lot of people, but not for everyone. And I didn't use that method. It wasn't the right method for me. And I have 29 years of strong, you know, sobriety. And so it's also a reassurance to people who want to do it a different way than the, the AA, you know, most common way that it's it's a viable option. You can do it, you know, a way that's going to work better for you and get sober and stay sober and have a happy and productive life. But that's it's mostly as an example and as a sense of hope, including for the families, that their family member who's struggling has a possible future in recovery. Don't give up on your family or friend. Tell me about your family, how they react to the book. <laughs> well, um, my sister and I, you know, as I say in the book, we're war buddies, right? So she she read it and she, it's 100% consistent with her memory because we did this together. Um, there are some other people, they didn't live the same experience. And so they're a little surprised by some of the things about my mom uh, or, or along those lines. But my mom's no longer with us. So, she, you know, in a way that's 
easier. She doesn't have a reaction to it. I don't have to worry about that. Um, but I think they're supportive of me. They're just surprised by some of the details. They, they may have known the general arc of my life, but not every single story. And so partly they're adjusting to the fuller understanding of how much trauma there really was. So, so you, your inner circle uh, of friends, they, they looked at you still the same and they said, wow, we didn't realize it was that, that deep. I think they, they do look at me the same because they knew the, the overarching view, but some of them told me how hard it was to read because to yeah. them, I'm not just a character in the book. It's their friend or my cousin struggled with reading it because, you know, she loves me and she remembers me as a little girl and those kind of things. So some, because they know you, they have a different emotional reaction than a reader might. And some of them do mention that it was challenging, but yet at the same time, it's a way for them to know me at a deeper level. And so there is value that you know i think this is probably one of those books that would be good for counselors to have a couple on their bookshelf when people are in front of them and they say hey uh i really don't have a way to go right now read chapter six and we'll talk about it next week that's what i hope my book does hey you know read chapter three and we'll talk about it is there a chapter that you would think there would be one that would be oh i hope every counselor reads that one and gives to their clients. I, I think it would be, I mean, 30% of the book is recovery focused and that was yes. on purpose. I don't want it to just be about the trauma. I want it to be about how I found my way out. And I do have guidelines and a checklist in the back of ideas about recovery. Um, but for the chapters, I think it would probably be the year one of my recovery because that's the most challenging year, really. As I say, going from 28 years to 29 years, that's not the hard part. Okay? That's yeah. not the hard part. Um, it's those early times. And then the first year, I did have some struggles and a lot of surprises. And and um, I think that knowing that I, I had those challenges as the, the person who's also new in recovery might be having, and yet found a way forward, kept going, you know, attained success. Those early struggles are normal. And sometimes it can help us to be able to keep going, to know that what we're experiencing is just a normal part of the process and it will get better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We only have like a minute left, Marybeth. Tell me real quickly, chapter 20, the science of addiction. What is that? I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Yes. I thought it's important for people to understand that, you know, a substance that you consume regularly, it alters your brain, especially when you're young, when your brain isn't really fully formed. And a lot of people that have a substance use disorder started in their teens or early 20s. And so it's not just a willpower issue. You know, your brain has sort of been trained itself to keep you need the drug. You convince you're convinced you need it. You're hyper focused on the drug. It's what you think about. Um, it's not that you want to keep living that way. It's that your brain's been rewired to push you to keep living that way. But the positive side is that when you get sober, your brain rewires in a positive direction too, right? When you develop new habits and positive choices and a better life, that's a different positive rewiring of the brain. So yeah, it's, it's a tough, it, it makes it harder to get sober, but it's also part of the process for finding sobriety, finding recovery. Yeah. Fantastic. Remember, Beth, it was, it was an honor to have you with us tonight. From Junkie to Judge, and what's the subtitle again from? One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. Yes.
I recommend it to everybody. It, it's a long book. It, it wasn't a quick read. Uh, mine's a quick read. Mine's short, but it, you put a lot of words in this book. How many words did it end up coming up in your book? I think, Remember? I think it's around 85,000, which is like about average for a memoir. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, that's a good one. Mine was a lot shorter than that. <laughs> <laughs> I ran out of stuff to write, but uh, or ways to put it anyway. But thank you for being with us tonight. I recommend everybody to go down to Barnes & Noble if you have one locally. If it's not there, ask them to get it. Or you can get right on Amazon right now and uh, read it. Uh, and I recommend everybody to uh, pick up a copy. And you may want another copy to a friend that has a child that's going through some tough times. It's perfect for that. Mary Beth, thank you for being with us tonight. Thanks for having me. Okay. And go Eagles, right? We'll see what happens. Thank you so much. As we do each and every week, I always like to end the program in the same way. And Mary Beth would probably tell you the exact same thing. No matter what has happened to you in your past, no matter how many years of pain, trauma, drug use, kidnappings, abuses, rapes, whatever, has gone to happen in your life, or if you're in the middle of it right now. I want to let you know, as surely as I'm sitting here on my piano bench in my home uh, talking to you, I want you to know there's hope. There's always hope. Go back, listen to this again, and in that first couple minutes of the program, surround yourself with the people that bring you up not weigh you down, and then make a step starting right now in the right direction. It don't have to be a leap. It just has to be a small step and never stop making those advancements each and every day. And who knows, you may be the next judge uh, <laughs> that is called into an appellate court or federal court somewhere. But whatever your dream is, it's reachable if you hang on to hope. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Join us right here next week for another live edition from Houston, Texas of Breaking the Silence. God bless. Have a good evening. Good night. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. To contact Dr. Williams, dial... 832-396-6525 or email him at shatteredbythedarkness at gmail.com and don't forget to join us each Sunday night at 8 p.m. Central Time 6 p.m. Pacific on BBS Radio Station 1 for the next episode of Breaking the Silence